Just in case you're wondering, Bob was not stealing the Lottie Moon (laughs) Christmas offering. One of my most disturbing times in church, I was a little boy, very little, five or six years old, and we went to Brotherhood Breakfast, and the offering basket was passed around in the fellowship hall, and every time that we did it, I saw this one man in particular that came all the time taking money out of the basket. And I thought we had a great church scandal. I didn't say anything to anyone. But after months, I finally went to Daddy and said, uh, Mr. W.H. is stealing money out of the basket during brotherhood every time. And he started laughing and said, Oh, no, son, he's just making change. Which is a different story altogether. Any of you cold? Okay, good. If so, I was going to call an audible and preach on hell and try to warm things up in here for you. Well, good, I can preach what I plan. Let's turn together to John chapter 7, verse 39. I noticed just in case i forgotten who I am, there's a sign on the screen that says, I'm Brother Micah Gandy. That would be helpful at some time. John chapter 7, verse 37. John chapter 7 has been about responding to Jesus. In it, we've seen the different ways that people respond to Jesus. And we've learned that ultimately, there are only two ways that people respond to Jesus. They either receive Him by faith, or if they don't, they reject Him. Today, we come to the last portion of the chapter that we haven't covered. And that's intentional. It's not the last verses in the chapter, but it's the last portion that I've saved intentionally. I've saved the best for last. In this passage, we find why people can respond to Jesus. We find what people are responding to when they respond to Jesus. This passage contains the invitation of Jesus. It's my favorite thing to preach. That might surprise some of you. I know that there are some of you that think my favorite passages are the hard passages. The mean passages, the harsh passages, the difficult passages. But my very favorite passages to preach are passages like this. Passages that contain the invitation of Jesus. We've all received invitations before. To parties, to dinners, to weddings to graduations, to other ceremonies and celebrations. But let's not pass this off as merely another invitation in a long line of invitations. This invitation is much, much better. 
it is much more important. This is the invitation of Jesus. Follow along with me as I begin to read in verse 37. It says, On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit. For the Spirit had not yet been received because Jesus had not yet been glorified. I want you to notice with me three things about the invitation of Jesus. First, I want you to notice the setting. The setting of the invitation of Jesus. In the first part of verse 37, we find it. It says it was on the last and most important day of the festival. The festival here refers, as we've already seen a couple of times in our study through John chapter 7, refers to the festival of tabernacles, or the feast of booths it was sometimes called. You know, the Jewish calendar revolved around these religious observances, these Religious celebrations, they called them feasts or festivals. There were many of them. There were three of them that were more important than all the others. This festival was one of the three. Along with Passover and Pentecost, the festival of tabernacles was one where every Jew who was anywhere close to being able was to make their way back to Jerusalem. So with these three festivals, there were huge crowds of people from all over the land of Israel and Judea, and not only there, but from the Jews that had been scattered abroad. Huge crowds. This particular festival was a remembrance of Israel's experience in the wilderness. And by the wilderness, I'm talking about the time between their slavery in Egypt and their making it into Canaan, the promised land. For 40 years, because of their sinfulness and rebellion, rather than immediately going out of slavery to freedom in Canaan, God had them wander around in the desert. And they remembered this every year in this festival, and in particular, they remembered and celebrated God's provision for them and for their ancestors during that wilderness time. There were two things that stood out to them when they thought about and celebrated God's provision in the wilderness. One 
was how God fed them with manna from heaven. And the other was how God provided them with water in that desert land. And in so doing, God provided them with life. Most famously, God had provided them with water from a rock. You know, that's ultimately what kept Moses out of the promised land. God told him to speak to the rock. But instead, Moses in his anger struck the rock. And the water flowing forth could have been attributed to Moses hitting the rock rather than to a miracle that God had done. So Moses was disciplined. And he died before they made their way into the promised land. When they were doing this festival, they were remembering that. They were celebrating God's providing for them. This festival is also a thanks for the harvest. Because every year it occurred around the time that the latter harvest had come in. And they were giving thanks to God for His provision for them in the harvest for a good crop that had come in or for whatever crop had come in. The harvest, though, also symbolized the ultimate harvest that God would do of His people. So in celebrating the harvest, they were also celebrating a future spiritual harvest when God would gather all of His people together. And with all of this, during this festival, there was also a great expectation of the Messiah. The Jews were a people who, from their beginning, looked forward to a promised deliverer, a Savior. And this festival especially was accompanied by Messianic fervor. They were all there. They were gathered around. They were doing these things. They were remembering their past. They were celebrating their present. But they were looking forward to the future. When God would send the promised Messiah, He would deliver them. And ultimately, when He would be the fulfillment of all these things they were celebrating during this festival... He would be the fulfillment of the water and the manna. He would be the fulfillment of the provision of God. He would be the fulfillment of the gathering of God's people or the harvest. We also read there at the first part of verse 37 that this was on the last and most important day of the festival. And with this day there was a grand ceremony that took place. In fact, the whole week there were ceremonies that took place and there was one ceremony that took place every day. Once a day for the entire week of this festival, the high priest would go to the pool of Siloam and with him he would have a golden pitcher and he would fill that pitcher up with water from the pool of Siloam and he would make his way back to the temple area and back to the altar and following along behind him would be the people of Israel and they would be quoting Isaiah chapter 12 verse 3 which says you will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation. And the priest with the people quoting and celebrating would pour this 
pitcher of water out once a day on the altar, there before the altar of God. And the choir and the people would be singing the Hallel, which is made up of the 113th through the 118th Psalms. You could read those this afternoon if you'd like to. They're Psalms that remember God's provision for Israel, that celebrate God's deliverance of Israel and the victory that He had provided for them and would provide for them over their enemies. Well, on the last day, this day, that's referenced here, the most important day of the festival. They didn't just do this one time, they did this seven times. Priest would go get a pitcher full of water. He would make his way back to the altar. He would pour it out. The people would be quoting the Old Testament passages that pointed forward to this. The choir and the people would be singing these hymns of praise to God. Seven times they did this on the last day. And also on this last day, there would be a a great prayer that would be offered. A prayer for water. And that was the symbolism of the pouring out of the golden pitcher full of water. They were praying for physical water, rain, because by this time in the year, their water supplies would be low. They would be praying that that God would replenish their streams, their rivers, their, their lakes, that He would be replenishing their own cisterns. They were praying for physical water. But they were also praying for spiritual water. They would pray for spiritual rain. Where God would shower and flood His people with the salvation that that He had promised. Now sometimes the prayer for physical water or rain was answered. Sometimes it wasn't. But their prayer for spiritual water and rain was answered. It had been answered in Jesus. The Messiah had come. The Deliverer. The the One that they looked forward to for rescue and deliverance. He had come. But they were still thirsty. And still their thirst wasn't satisfied. And so every year they would continue to pray because they did not see Jesus as the fulfillment of all of their ceremonies and all of their prayers. It's important for us to understand the setting of the invitation of Jesus. Some of you think what I just did was a wasted however many minutes it took me to do. When it comes to Bible study, there are some who want none of that. They don't want any background. They don't want any history. They don't want any setting. They don't want any context. They just want to jump right to me. But here's the value of understanding the context or the setting of what we read in Scripture. The way God's Word applies to us 
will never be more vivid than when we understand what was going on when it was first being done and when it was first being written. Studying the setting here is important for us because in it we see thirsty people. I want you to get that in your mind. I want you to imagine that. Thousands of people that are thirsty. They are physically thirsty. They are spiritually thirsty. See those people. Picture that crowd. It shouldn't be that hard for us because we live in a similar setting today. Look around. Look around the congregation. Look around this city. Look around this community, this county, this state, this region, this country. Look around our world. And what we'll see if we open our eyes is a crowd full of people that aren't all that different. Thirsty people. Thirsty people. See them. Open your eyes. Some of you don't have to look very far. All you have to do is look in the mirror. And you see a thirsty person. The setting here sets the stage for the second thing about the invitation of Jesus that I want you to notice. And that is the parts of the invitation of Jesus. Look at verse 37. On the last and most important day of the festival... Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. In that latter half of verse 37, we see the parts of this invitation that Jesus issued and that He continues to issue. There are four parts that I want you to notice. The first part of the invitation of Jesus is to anyone. Do you see that? It's to anyone. Here we see the inclusivity of the invitation of Jesus. Especially we see how inclusive, how all-inclusive it was when we think about the makeup of this crowd. In this crowd, there weren't just religious, moral people. In this crowd, there weren't just powerful religious and political people. In this crowd, there weren't just important people. In this crowd, there were Jews of every stripe. There were Jews who were those things I just mentioned, but there were Jews on the opposite end of the spectrum as well. There were irreligious Jews in this crowd. There were immoral Jews in this crowd. There were Jews who weren't even Jewish in their culture. There were Jews who were from the Greek-speaking parts of the empire. They were much more like Gentiles than they were like Jews. Also in this crowd would have been Gentiles. Gentiles that 
were proselytes or who had become Jewish. Gentiles who were seekers looking to learn more about the Jewish God. And just plain Gentiles. Representatives of the Roman Empire that ruled over Israel. Do you see then how inclusive the invitation of Jesus was? The invitation of Jesus is just as inclusive today. It's just as broad. It's just as wide. Jesus looks over the crowd of the world today. Jesus looks over the crowd of people in this room today and in the listening audience to this message today. And He still says, anyone. And anyone includes the Jew and the Gentile. Those that we would identify as good and bad. The religious and the atheist. The rich and the poor. The powerful and the weak. The important and the insignificant. The American and every other nationality. The white and every other race. You've heard me say this before, but it bears repeating now. The word anyone here means... That it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you have. This isn't the only time that we see this truth. It isn't the only time that we've seen it in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1 verse 12, we see the word all. In John chapter 1, verse 29, we see the word world. In John chapter 3, verse 16, we see the words world and whoever or whosoever. In John chapter 3, verse 18, we see the word anyone. In John chapter 4, verse 14, when Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman, we see the word whoever. In John chapter 5, verse 24, we saw the word anyone. In John chapter 6, verse 40, we saw the word everyone. And in John chapter 6, verse 47, chapter 6, verse 50, chapter 6, verse 51, chapter 6, verse 54, we see the same word that we see here, anyone. Do you think the gospel writer was trying to make a point? You think Jesus was trying to make a point? This is the message of the Bible. This is the goodness of the good news, right? The first part of the invitation of Jesus is to anyone. And every one of you needs to know that that includes you. Now, the second part of the invitation of Jesus is to the thirsty. If anyone shows us the inclusivity of the invitation of Jesus, the word thirsty shows us the exclusivity of the invitation of Jesus. Thirsty is an invitation 
that we see in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 1 says, Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters. And you without money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. That's part of the goodness of the good news. It's not just to anyone, but it won't cost you anything. How many of you like freebies? It's free. You know, there's so many good things in life that most of the people in the world can't enjoy because they don't have the money, right? Most of the people of the world can't and don't enjoy the finer things in life, or what we would call the finer things in life, because they can't afford it. Here's the way it is with God. For the finest thing in all of life, it won't cost you anything. But it costs Jesus everything. It's the same as the invitation that we see at the end of the Bible, the end of the New Testament, Revelation twenty-two seventeen says both the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, and the Bride, that's the church, say, come. So it's not just an invitation that God is extending, that Christ is extending, that the Holy Spirit is extending. It's an invitation, people of God, that we are to be extending to others. Come. Anyone who hears should say, come. And the one who is thirsty should come. Whoever desires, desires is a synonym for thirst. Whoever desires should take the living water as a gift. The word thirsty here refers to any unmet desire that a person would have, any unmet need or any unmet longing. The people that Jesus was speaking to were thirsty. A lot of dissatisfaction among them. People today, as I've already said, still thirsty. Do you know of anyone who is completely and constantly and continually satisfied? If you do, please get their name to me. None of us are that one. I mean, we all could sing right along with the Rolling Stones. I can't get no. I would ask you to respond in antiphonal praise this morning, satisfaction, but I'm scared how that would go. Have to get Glenn to work that up for us. And you know what causes this can't-get-no-satisfaction feeling? It's sin. It's the consequence of sin, our own sin, and sin in the world. It leaves us dissatisfied, thirsty. People are thirsty for peace. Peace. 
Right? With everything that's going on, people are thirsty for peace. People are thirsty for an external sort of peace, but even more so, people are thirsty for an internal peace. People are thirsty for joy and happiness. That's what everybody's looking for. Peace and happiness. People are thirsty for purpose and meaning and significance to life and their own lives. People are thirsty for prosperity. People are thirsty for health. People are thirsty for assurance. And love. And intimacy. And friendship. Relationships. People are thirsty for pleasure. And recognition. And power. People thirst for hope. For help. For wholeness. In themselves and in the world. And for the people that they love. Wholeness. People are thirsty for forgiveness. People are thirsty for something that's better than this. People are thirsty for heaven. Even if they don't put it in words like that, they're thirsty for heaven. If not the heaven that we think of when we hear the word, but at the very least, heaven on earth. The invitation of Jesus is to all these people. The reason I say that is because only... In Christ can all our thirst be quenched. Only in Christ. Everyone of those things that I mentioned that people thirst for, that we thirst for, are legitimate thirst. Even the things that may have cost you to put your rabbit ears up when I said them, like recognition and power and prosperity. I'm telling you, those are legitimate thirst. But they can only be quenched in Jesus. People just looking for power in the wrong place. Only Jesus can give you the power that will satisfy you. People thirst for prosperity that's earthly and fleeting. But child of God, Donald Trump's not wealthier than us. We will inherit the earth and the universe. Now, I don't know exactly how many acres that is, but it's a lot.
In Matthew 5, 6, the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So He makes the kind of thirst more specific here. He he defines for us just how exclusive His invitation is here when He speaks to anyone who is thirsty. Specifically, His invitation is to those who thirst for righteousness. And that's an issue because... Apparently, not many people thirst for that. But what I would say is all of the other thirst that we have, all of the other thirst that people have, those are all tied in to this primary thirst of righteousness. And they will never be satisfied or quenched Until this righteousness issue is taken care of in our life. To thirst for righteousness is to thirst to be right. Some of you probably thought in a half-joking, half-serious way this week, I just wish I could be right. Some of you wonder if you're right or not. I'm not right. We wonder about that. The thirst for righteousness is a thirst to live right. Who among us this morning doesn't understand that whatever way we live, it's not all the way right? And that's part of our dissatisfaction. Thirsting for righteousness is a thirst to be right with God. That's where the dissatisfaction comes from. We aren't right with God. We have rebelled against Him. We are among a rebellious race. We are not right with God. A thirst for righteousness is for things to be right between us and Him. It's also a thirst to be right with others, which is impossible apart from being right with God. And it's a thirst for things to be right. When Jesus speaks about thirsting for righteousness in the Beatitudes, He's talking about thirsting for salvation, for rescue, for deliverance, from ourself, from Satan, from our sin. For salvation, for Meaning forgiveness and eternal life. This is where we can understand the exclusivity of the invitation of Jesus. It is to anyone. But it's only to the anyones who are thirsty. Are you thirsty this morning? Let's wrap it up here. Are you thirsty this morning? Every one of us is thirsty. I mean, if you don't get that, you're just living in denial. 
Now, we may not all thirst for the right things, but our thirst, our lack of satisfaction, is indicative of a a deeper thirst. Something far more significant. So significant that until it is quenched and satisfied, the best we can hope for for our other thirst is temporary satisfaction. If you're thirsty this morning, see that thirst as pointing you to a need for Jesus. A need for righteousness that we just talked about. A need to be right. For things to be right. A need to be right with God. A need to be right with others. And I'll just go ahead and give you a preview of the rest of the passage. What we really have a need for is Jesus. And it's not a one-time need. Believers, we understand this, don't we? We should. We need Jesus today. We need Jesus tomorrow. We didn't just need Jesus today. He saved us. We need Jesus. So if you're thirsty, see that it's really a thirst for rightness, righteousness, continuing righteousness. And drink from Jesus. Drink from Jesus through believing on Him and continuing to believe on Him. Would you stand with me?